The Society of Economic Geologists is thrilled to be hosting the SEG 2024 conference from the 27th to the 30th of September in Windhoek, Namibia, a country known for its spectacular geology and unique ore deposits. You can find out more at segweb.org slash seg-2024 for all the conference themes, dates, workshops, field trips, and more. Abstracts are now open until the 22nd of April. So come join us in Windhoek for what promises to be a geologic adventure in a country that is leading the way in mineral resource sustainability on the African continent. See you there. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Discovery to Recovery, where we bring you geoscience and technology stories from the world of ore deposits. Very excited to have you all here for our 10th episode. This podcast is a partnership between the Society of Economic Geologists and Sequent. You can listen anywhere you get your podcasts. We have a new episode out every Monday. Your hosts for this series are Nicole Doucette, Sequent, Hallie Keevil, Cobalt Metals, and I'm Ann Thompson, PetroScience Consultants. Last week was all about gold exploration, but in order to access land and develop projects, there's some critical work to be done with local communities. This episode will learn what impact exploration geologists have on community relationships, with insights from experts, and highlights of an open house for geoscience data. Lastly, we hear from the early career scientists at Ore Deposits Hub about how they are building their own community. So, hello. Uh, my name is Monica Ospina. I'm the founder and director of O-Trade. Uh, we are a socioeconomic development firm. And uh, what we do is that we have expertise in designing and implementing solutions that allow the mineral industry to work collaboratively with communities in the areas where they operate. Monica started her career as a financial trader in the banking industry she says, a long time ago. It led to an awareness of local communities and a passion for their understanding poverty and the role that private companies can play in development. She completed a master's degree in diplomatic studies, as well as postgraduate work in sustainability and international business strategy. And that was my inspiration. So since then, I started thinking, on how can I help? Uh, how can I do something that brings the good of the private sector? It's a lot in the fact that that when you pay for somebody to do a job, you are not only just giving a salary, you are honoring the effort and the knowledge and the innovation and the ideas that come to the table. And when they go back home, they have the freedom to raise their families and to put food on the table, the house they want to buy, the culture they want to keep, the religion they want to honor. And so I struggled because back then in the 90s, there was nothing called corporate social responsibility or sustainable development. That was pure socioeconomics. And that's why I keep all trade as socioeconomics. It's just the balance between society and the distribution of resources in economics. I was able to gain knowledge on how you can start learning about poverty alleviation and how you can understand the reality of people living in extreme conditions. And I really wanted to, to create solutions on that. And that's the story. Number one, you have to be humble in, in acknowledging that living under stress is very difficult, but also humble in understanding that the private sector can do up to a certain point my clients have ideas, communities that I work with that have ideas, and happens that I'm just the bridge 
and, and not a genius here. It's just a bridge that makes those ideas happen. It's because the needs of one community are very different than another, and the capacities of a company or private sector is different than another. I help companies to serve communities. That's what I do. One important concept in community relationships is what has been termed social license or social acceptance. I asked Monica to tell me what that translates to in real and ongoing relationships between a company and community. It was very much needed a, a term that, uh, that we can materialize the idea of what does it mean for, for the private sector to have acceptance. And that is the social license, is the acceptance and approval of being a foreigner working in your backyard and you're okay with that. That is the social license. The whole concept behind obviously is much more complex because it integrates legal from the perspective of the rights of the concessions and human rights, indigenous rights, and land rights. So all of these just come together. But it is very important that when companies think about obtaining the social license is not the result of a glossy brochure or a public relations piece of work or a good writer think. That is just a dreamland. You can have a dream picture in a glossy brochure, but it doesn't mean that you have the acceptance. Uh, it's the same like when somebody gets married and has the most beautiful wedding and the picture of the wedding was the most beautiful, but the day two, three, or 10 years after, the person is miserable. The glossy picture of the wedding doesn't reflect the, the quality of the relationship that this person encounter. So it's exactly the same for, for communities. And, and that is one of the serious pieces that I am very critical when companies work on their sustainability reports or CSR reports or their websites. They want that glossy picture, but the glossy picture doesn't sometimes reflect if the relation is a depressed one or a happy one. So we can't judge it by the glossy pictures and we can't necessarily know what's going on in the field with individual teams and crews. So how do we know there is social acceptance in any relationship? I think it's very important here to highlight geologists, the social license and how it manifests. The most sensitive individuals that I have met in my career, they drink the water the community drinks. They sleep in the houses and the communities live. They eat the food the community eat. They participate in the festivities the community has. When we are talking about those field geologists that they go to the field and they start the work. So it is critically important to appreciate that effort. They really face the reality when I was talking about poverty and that they live that. That's their life when they are in the field. And that goes into building of that relationship that is acceptance. How it materializes in terms of the operation, so we are more into the business side and the operation side. It, it translates to collaboration. Collaboration means that if the geology crew is gonna go into the field, you have horses that belong to the community, people from the community helping to carry all of this equipment. So, so many times in the projects that I have been working and had the opportunity to work, I, I make a big emphasis that is the local community that monitors and observes the project. When they are doing sampling sediments in rivers, is the community who knows what is happening in the river. It's not 
a, a outsider. So they know, they work, they walk, they go the mosquito bites, they cook, they laugh at night, and they get the samples. And that is local participation because that gives control to the community, not of the knowledge of the geologists, but control of what they are doing is real. They observe with their own eyes. They walk the areas. They help to put the sand in the bags. They number the bags and they put it back in the mule to go out of the field. And the transparency is, is the other piece. Transparency in the communication is when you tell these people in the communities, we are going to sample, uh, we take samples from uh, sediments in the river, and they go and they do that, and it's true. It's not that you put chemicals, and it's not that you're going to do this and that and that. No, you went, you did that, you come back, it's real. So it's transparency, it's nothing hidden under the table. And the other piece that happens that is amazing is that in this dialogue from the community to the field, to the river, to sampling, I'm just using sediment as a sample, but there's so many processes in this. It's a lot of knowledge transfer. And even communities, when they participate like this in a transparent process, they learn about recognizing the regions they even learn about what happened in the rivers if there is agriculture that it wasn't not done very well that oh my god the water is not dirty not because of geologists it's because somebody is doing something with the water or sometimes they even learn to recognize rocks and that they become uh, junior geologists because they got passionate about this so it's a lot of knowledge transfer on this so all of these that i have described that will be the our academic western world interpretation of what is happening in the field but for communities they interpret as unaccepted and i accept you therefore you are welcome to my region come and work with us and that equals the social license i can see the the trust that would build in that relationship but there's always this aspect of exploration which is what if you find something Will you be bringing drills? Will you be coming to dig? How do you incorporate that into building that relationship? Well, when you mentioned the word trust, and it's, it is interesting because trust, we always we say, oh, it's very difficult, and it's broken a glass, you won't ever have the same glass, and da-da-da. Actually, I, 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 I kind of argue that it's nothing more beautiful than building trust. And that's the one you have control. Every day, every action is, is, is building trust. Every time that you made a mistake and you honestly and sincerely apologize and fix it is, is an honest action that builds trust. Because I know that if you made a mistake, you will come back. And that is what the social license is and is what the trust is. And that is what an investor educated to assess what is a healthy project will see, will look after. Show me the trust. Show me the trust. And the trust materializes not in how many churches you paint and how many computers you put in a school. It materializes in the improving living conditions of fairly the entire community. So there's a fair amount of work on the investor side and the corporate side to actually assess whether or not that relationship is working and whether there is really social acceptance. Mm Mm-hmm. So, so is there a process by which you can benchmark? Well, I'm very happy that you asked this because the, inv- the investing community, the shortcut is 
www.company.ca and what they post. Oh, do I like this? And that's when marketing is pretty, pretty good. But when you're talking about, for example, pension funds, when you're talking about people's savings, your savings, my savings, so they have to be very serious about where they're putting their money and serious about how much they trust the companies that they're putting their money. And that is not an easy game. Benchmarks there are. The World Bank through IFC, the International Finance Corporation, they have set frameworks. One, uh, IFC performance standards that is actually very extensive in terms of the, the commitments. And that is when, when this, these are high, high benchmarks. Uh, there is also the sustainability reports and the sustainable development goals have been frameworks that help to address attention to certain issues. For the, the SDGs address attention around poverty, access to water, climate change, and so on, which are critical elements. One of the things that uh, uh, to take into consideration is that probably in your project, there's something that is not even mentioned in the SDGs. Indigenous land rights, for example, uh, indigenous communities have rights on the land, their ancestral land. So when you translate that, that means that as a, as a mining company or exploration company, you can just not go to the land and say, okay, I'm going to move this town, get out of here because I got a concession underground. No, you got a concession underground, you build a relationship with somebody who is on top. And that is land rights. Um, so we really need to just put all of these tools that are today available and try to customize to reality of the project. And that is when, when, when the investors don't understand the value of the work that, um, that uh, all of these companies are doing. And that's when investors need to have a very good eye about audits. I have done few. I would like to see more of that social audits. We don't see that. We see environmental audits. You see governance audits. And you see due diligence made about if this company is legally registered, blah, 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 blah. but when we talk about social audits, the ESG, sorry, environmental, social, and governance, every time I ask the question about social, they refer that, oh, yes, they have ex-workers and the union is there and they have dialogue. No, 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 it's bigger than that. It's the entire pillar of the social license that you're talking about and it's just not well assessed and the audits are not there and not happening and uh, and that is just a huge piece of risk for investors. So in thinking about the next generation of exploration geologists, I asked Monica if she felt it was going to be different for them. What tools would they have to work with? This new generation, they have social media and they really speak up. So that is one advantage for them because they understand rights. And in yeah. the 90s, when I started my career, I, rights was something that was in United Nations in New York or Geneva, but was not in my backyard. Today's rights, look at what is happening with, with the movements in the U.S. and worldwide. And it's the young generation who understands rights. So that it gives them a tool to be very, very closer to the human piece. And I'm sure if they understand that the work that they do is the first step towards a better future, they will do it with greater passion than the passion that they're doing today. I spoke next to Susan Joyce, 
president of the international consulting company On Common Ground. Susan is trained as a sociologist and completed a master's degree with a focus on rural sociology, which gave her an understanding of how rural communities live and interact. I'd actually really love to know how you came to be doing what you're doing right now. I really stumbled into working in the mining sector because I was in Bolivia in my early 20s in some research for a PhD and got involved quite accidentally in helping an exploration company look at uh, social conflict and opposition to the privatization of uh, some of the assets that had been nationalized in the early 90s. So I fell into the work quite unexpectedly because of uh, a huge explosion in, in exploration that was taking place at that time and found that I, as a rural sociologist, I could help translate for exploration companies that were working in Latin America, how they were perceived by rural communities, often rural indigenous communities, and why the assumptions that they brought to their work, that they were bringing opportunity, they were bringing modernity, they were bringing a chance for economic development, why those weren't necessarily things that the local communities trusted or wanted on their land. And that initial work at the coalface between exploration activities and communities in Bolivia pretty much led me into the work that I now have close to 30 years. You must have seen some changes in how the industry approaches communities and and vice versa. So can you give us some insights into what's happened over the last few decades? I think one of the things is the understanding that the impact of mining and exploration on people is much more complex and unpredictable than uh, the assumptions that we often go in into projects with. What I saw from a lot of explorationists, um, certainly in the 90s, when the first wave of mineral exploration people were coming into Latin America with opening up of exploration in a lot of countries. And that was this deep-seated assumption that they were bringing something positive, opportunities for change, for economic development, and that what they were doing was at, at face value, very positive for local communities. And in fact, it's not necessarily seen that way by communities Uh, living on the land, living in rural areas whose rights are not secured, and they don't see the arrival of this external economic power play to, to some extent. They don't necessarily see that as working in their favor or, or aligned with what they want uh, for their future. In, in that same period of time, we've gone, you know, with the development of environmental regulations We've gone from really what was a basis of do no harm in terms of environment. And, but we came to understand that ecosystems and biodiversity and these things are much more complex than we were able to manage effectively. And also that the damage and the impacts happen in unanticipated ways. And we've gone to a focus on ensuring that there, there's a net positive impact Um, this is what's expected in terms of international standards. So you can't just leave it 
the way it was, but you tried to improve. And I think if we look at that as a metaphor for what's changed in, in terms of social and community issues, it's not an issue of doing no harm. It's really an issue of ensuring that a new economic development like mining or even mineral exploration is not something that's going to have unpredicted, unanticipated negative impacts in the local communities. The approach Susan has described is much more sophisticated and nuanced, based on years of experience by social scientists working in the field. It also includes recognizing from the start what happens with the earliest exploration. The presence of groups of people doing an activity such as you know mineral exploration that is uh, not part of the local culture not part of the local economy it can have a multitude of different kinds of effects some of them positive and some of them negative and it's it needs to be handled with much more professionalism much um deeper look at the local conditions and the local reality than uh, what we assumed in the past. Sustainability has to be defined locally because what is sustainable development for the well-being of, of me and, and my community looks very different to a, a Taltan elder or a Taltan community leader, you know, in northern BC than it does to a small-scale farmer in Guatemala or a cattle herder in Africa. What do we call this? Is it still a social license to operate? Or are we looking for something that's more ongoing, long-term in terms of the community benefit? How, how would you phrase it? Well, that's a, that's a good question. And, you know, all concepts and terms come to mean different things for different people. I think the, the language of social license to operate has had a really important role at raising the profile of the right and the capacity of local communities to call a halt to projects if they haven't accepted them, if they haven't bought into them, if the company hasn't acquired that social license to operate. What I find in its application is it has become what we call a bit too transactional, which is that in exchange for an enhanced flow of economic benefits, let's say, or investment in the community or jobs, the permission is given, especially when industry is in one of its growth cycles, when the boom cycle is on and there's money flowing. So there's been a lot of questioning about whether it has really led to a more meaningful understanding within companies about what it means to develop a project such that it has the acceptance of local people. I like the language better of social acceptance. That tends to be what I use. But I also think that the, the more we can move to the concept of well-being, then we're talking about people having a more holistic understanding of where they want to get to and what is important to them. But none of, none of these terms ultimately are a silver bullet. And I personally like the concept of talking and thinking in terms of a, a rights-based approach uh, in working with communities. I think that the language of human rights and the concept of human rights is, is still quite strange and um, often very threatening to companies. 
But we are clearly moving down that path. If we look at the way that international standards and expectations are changing, human rights and the need to, to ensure that projects aren't negatively affecting human rights is becoming fully consolidated as part of international standards. I asked Susan what the role of regulatory frameworks are, which in some cases still seem to be the go-to for many companies. Does a permit mean you have a right to proceed? Social and community and cultural impacts begin at the very beginning. They begin to take place when the first geologist hits the ground. There's already uh, going to be a series of potential changes to social norms, to social dynamics, to power dynamics and relationships within communities. They can be enhancing the positive or they could be enhancing, you know, already existing problems. So one of the issues about regulatory frameworks is they very rarely encompass a wide enough set of issues to deal with social and cultural impacts They sometimes, but in not all cases, require that local communities or affected people get something positive from the project. But, But they usually are focused on the environmental regulatory process. And that is a very small, it's not small, it can be a very long process, but that is way too late in the mine life cycle in an exploration through to, you know, feasibility through to permitting, it's way too late to begin looking at and managing not just social impacts, but, but building the social relationships and developing a discussion around how local communities may or may not benefit from or participate in this change process that exploration and even more so a mine implies. Engage and work with communities as is required in this day and age where no conflict remains local. It can become an international conflict immediately because of social media and the the ability of local communities to be informed about a company that they're engaging with uh, and how it operates in other countries and just all all the potential, but also the increasing capacity of communities to assert their concerns and their fears and to try to challenge projects early on. Adhering to international investment standards can help to develop positive outcomes and healthy community company relationships. As Monica mentioned previously, the International Finance Corporation leads with its modern performance standards that sets the bar on avoidance of harm, social, cultural, health and safety and environment. So you've got a a clear indicator that in particular, if you're going to be looking for funding as a, as a project advances, which most projects are given the scale of, you know, mining projects and the cost these days, you're going to need to be adhering to these, to this higher bar, which is set by these international standards, rather than thinking that following local law, local regulatory frameworks is, is sufficient. Right. And then clearly investors can see that and see that those standards have been followed so that they have greater confidence as well, presumably in the project. 
Absolutely. The in, investors are, are looking at that. Again, that's this whole area called environmental, social and governance investing, ESG investing, that most of the big investment houses are looking at that now. But you've also got the equator principles. I think more than 80% of mine financing goes through the bank's the global suite of banks that have now signed on to the equator principles, which says that they will apply the same international standards of the IFC performance standards. They will apply those to their projects with some additional components that the equator principle banks require. So the European development banks, a lot of lenders and probably socially responsible investors I think the latest that I heard is $40 trillion in investment funds are, with, are, are being managed under socially responsible investing or what we call ESG, environmental, social, and governance uh, criteria. That's massive. It's huge. <laughs> yeah, it's huge. And it seems like it's starting to have an impact, that's for sure. So earlier you mentioned that we need to be doing this social work and assessment very early and that also we are really concerned with what the long-term impact is when the mining will end. So what do you see in terms of looking at the full life cycle view of an operation or mine? I think integrating exploration more into the full thinking and the full mine life cycle approach would would be very, very positive. And I, I think that's true because I see many of the issues that communities have with mine development is like in, in many countries that have historic mining, let's say, they can see the, the residue and the contamination and in the abandoned piles of tailings in the riverbed from historic mining. And there's no appetite for ex- having the mining sector expand with that as the history. And the boom-bust cycle is something that is very damaging to communities as well. So both if you're at the stage of conceptualizing a mine, you know, the conversation from the beginning needs to be, this is the arc of the expansion, the development, the operation, the closure, the post, the remediation, the post-closure, and this is what it will look like at the end, or, you know, what do you want it to look like at the end? And that's the kind of conversation that need to be held. But in the same way, exploration, people need to, you know, there's this unbounded, sometimes unbounded, sometimes cautious optimism that is inherent to the exploration geologist. But geologists need to to be talking to people also about what will happen if they leave after one season of drilling? What if there's just nothing there at the target? What if they're on and off for four years and after four years they leave? So they, there's a life cycle to most exploration projects that doesn't mean getting to, to mine development. So also, you know, conceptualizing of their work and a closure process and a closure plan for exploration in all of its phases is, is a more healthy way to engage with and talk about, you know, the possibilities and the probabilities of what this relationship will be over time, right? 
the second part of that question would be, if we're starting very early when boots go on the ground, is it possible? Does that geologist have enough skills or, or can that person be taught how to behave, what to be looking for, or do we need to bring in a team that includes social scientists? It's complex. I remember uh, an early community and uh, dialogue specialist, Des O'Connor from he- here on Vancouver Island, who was one of the first people to say that communities are as very complex and undetermined before you take a deep look as our you know, geological formations. You don't know what's there and it could be you know, anything under the sun until you begin to really probe and understand. I think that a really pragmatic approach is that in going into new jurisdictions, a specialist should be brought on to do sort of a a scoping review of the challenges and the cultural issues and the history of social uh, or community mining relations in an area like that. So you should have a a knowledge of the context before you go into a new jurisdiction. And then geologists, geologists can lead the charge. They can do a lot of the early work on the ground, but they do have to have training. And there does need to be an understanding that not all geologists should be representing the company in in talking to local people because some people are good at it and some people don't do it well. You know, don't share information easily, don't listen to what people are actually asking them and try to find out what are the concerns. So so people are different in the skill sets that they bring to that. So, you know, perhaps there's a, a layer there of building skills, but also understanding who's good at one thing and who's good at something else, you know. And if that, maybe if that's more widely taught and trained and thought about for young geologists, then it wouldn't be such a hard thing for a geologist to say, look, I'm, I'm really not good at the community interface, or I don't speak Spanish, you know, or whatever the case may be. And let's be sure that there's somebody on the team. Maybe it's a junior person, maybe it's a driver, somebody that is good at that interface. So trying to keep the the burden on a, a first phase drilling program or, or even the prospecting phase to, to have that appropriate to the scale of the activity, but not leave it out. You can also provide checklists of issues that they have to be sure that they're looking at and paying attention to. What, what's on your list? <laughs> well, I would say, you know, right away, one of the things that we always want exploration groups to look at is don't get tied up with one power group within a community. Talk to enough people when you first go in to understand who are the leaders, are there different factions. I mean, obviously you have to do this subtly and and with some time, but don't align yourself right away to, you know, a powerful person who approaches you, it's typically going to be a man, but approaches you and offers you access to workers or access to the president of the communities. So hold back, go slow, build your information base about the community and about the people 
and try to make agreements and work relationships and things like that that are going to provide opportunities for all, all in the community and not just maybe one elite group or one, one faction within the community. That's a, a core starting point, but it's also because it implies that you're going in and you're listening before you're talking. You know, it's critical. So these are skills that can be taught and are important ones. It sounds like really you're giving the community as much attention as you are your rocks in terms of essentially mapping it and looking at it in all its complexity. And again, instead of just getting distracted by the first outcrop you saw. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly, exactly the case. And access to land and land rights and, and use of land is, is critical to the longer term project in any location, you know, and so also, taking the time to, to try to understand about land use and land rights. And yeah. again, there, there's, there's a series of, of triggers that can say, we need somebody to look at this. But I would say, for example, in many of the countries where, where I've worked, thinking in particular, you know, the Andes, calling in a lawyer to tell you what the legal framework for land ownership this is not the way to understand what land issues are on the ground in the local community. So I would use an anthropologist, I would use a sociologist, if I'm really, you know, interested in that area and and have a a target identified or my first uh, drill holes have been positive. So it's a question of also accessing expertise that will, that has the right kind of information, not, not just the formal legal framework. Right. And and recognizing what expertise you need. Yes. That's the first thing we know. We all need to know when, when we don't have the expertise we need and and what is the appropriate level that we need or type. Yeah. Yeah. So in in any country or region, there'll be a a series of, of things that, that you should do to respect the local landowners and the local culture. And it's different for, with a Kikuyu chief in Kenya than it is, with a, the president of a, a directive council of a, a campesino or peasant community with collective land base in Peru. So you need to n- go in knowing what is the right respectful way to deal with the different levels of rights and authority in the local area. And then as you're there and on the ground, hear what people are concerned about. Again, keeping your ears, your listening should be your most active sense, your ears and your eyes rather than your tongue. When we first started planning an episode on geoscience exploration communities back in February, pre-pandemic, we got notice of an open house being held by Geoscience BC in Campbell River on Vancouver Island. Geoscience BC generates independent and relevant public earth science research and data about British Columbia's minerals, energy, and water resources. They hope that this advances the knowledge, informs responsible development, and encourages investment, even stimulates innovation. But if what they do is generate data, why were they holding an open house in a small town in British Columbia? We went to find out and spoke with the geophysicist Todd Ballantyne, who led the survey, and Richard Truman from Geoscience BC, 
First, we heard about the survey they completed that covered about 20% of Vancouver Island. For context, the meeting was held in the local community centre. We chatted to Todd briefly first about his role in the project and what he was doing at the meeting. I'm here today specifically to try and help people in this community to understand what geophysics is, what we can do with geophysics, why the geophysics is useful, how it helps exploration, which in turn is related to helping their community. So I'm here to give some insight into the things we can do with geophysics, how it helps geologists, how it helps the map, how they can use it to explore better, to improve old maps, all sorts of things. I've been working on this project since August when we began flying. So I was involved in the data QC, um, going through every line of data as the data came in, and then involved in the assessment of the deliverables. So the data collected in this survey is airborne magnetics and radiometrics. In Todd's presentation, he broke down the basics of the survey so everyone there could understand the technique and how results might or might not be used by exploration companies. I asked him how aware local residents would be when the survey was in their area. Well, that was a silly question. The community would be aware of it when it's flying. It flies at 80 meters above ground, and it flies lines that are spaced 250 meters apart. A very detailed survey. So when you encounter a community, though, you fly a lot higher. They may go to three or 400 meters over communities. After the open house, we talked to Richard to understand more of Geoscience BC's approach to community engagement. I'm Richard Truman. I'm the Director of External Relations at Geoscience BC. Excellent. So what does that exactly mean, external relations? So external relations means I look after and and, and help with our relationships with a whole bunch of different folks. So on the mineral side of things, the the research that Geoscience BC does, the the obvious group of people that we want to talk to is the folks involved in mineral exploration and the junior mining companies, those sorts of people. But to us, it's really important that we also talk to other groups too. So if we're doing a research project, we will go and make sure that we are talking to the local communities, community leaders will make sure that local businesses are aware of the fact that we're coming into town. We'll make sure the indigenous communities are aware of it too, because at the end of the day, at the end of the project, they all have a use for the data as well, and they're all interested in the outcomes that might come after the project has happened. So if there's new mineral exploration happening, the communities want to know that that's coming down the path, for example. Right. So you've had an approach of going out and talking to communities for several years now, been all over the province? Yeah, so we, we travel around a lot. So tonight I'm here and Brady's here and Todd, our geophysicist, is, is here too. We spent quite a lot of time on the road for this particular project over the last year or so. After we, we announced the project, or at least announced the, the enough, we had enough detail for the project, we came to Campbell River. We also went to Port McNeil. We did open houses and we spoke to the regional districts back in July of last year, just to say this is what's coming up. Because it's it's possible that people are going to come back and say, well, I'd really rather you didn't fly in this area. Or the flip side of that is, could you really, could you add something to the project here? So that's really that opportunity for those people to be able to do that. And that has happened in the past. And then we're back here again now at the end of the project. We released the data four or five weeks ago. So letting people know what the data is, what sort of things they can expect, because we released the data at a conference in Vancouver. That's not very helpful for someone that lives in Zabalos. So it's great for us to be able to come to the community and to explain to them here at home. So there's a history in this part of Vancouver Island of mining? Or, I mean, why, why did you pick this region? 
you're right. So we, there's, there's a whole bunch of places in BC that we that we could have chosen for a project like this. So on the mineral side of things, the way this works is Geoscience BC has a uh, minerals technical advisory committee, which is made up of experts with a lot of experience in the sector. They're all volunteers, and ultimately they're the ones that either generate new ideas, they identify where there's a gap in the knowledge that needs filling, or they look at ideas that other people submit, sometimes through requests for proposals, sometimes less formally, and they review those ideas to see if they are where we can get the best value for money. So the Technical Advisory Committee basically develops an outline for the project. That outline was then approved by our board, which is again made up of a group of volunteers, and some of them are involved in, in industry. Some of them have more of an indigenous perspective. Some of them are former mayors of communities. So again, it's making sure that you've got that, I guess, that, uh, that broad lens on whether this project is a good idea or not. So they ultimately approved the funding for it. In this example, we then put the, the idea for the project and, the, and the, the, the brief for the project out to a request for proposals. It's really interesting. And what it is, was impressive tonight to see the number of people here and to see the level of engagement. It seemed like you had a very receptive audience, certainly. Yeah, well, some interesting I, questions. Too. <laughs> <laughs> I always hope with these meetings that we're going to get a really good mix of people. And tonight, I think, I was, I was really pleased with what we got tonight. So we had about 23 people, I think, here tonight, which is... Yeah, I think is, is, is fairly typical for these sorts of meetings. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. We were excited last week in Port McNeil because we filled the room and ran out of chairs, which was great, but that's not always going to happen. But tonight we had a, a really good mix of people. So we had some local councillors. We had a mayor from one of the communities that was uh, in, in the project area. We had some folks from some of the some of the junior mining companies, some of the prospectors that are involved in the area, but also from some of the bigger organizations as well. We had a couple of students that are interested in geoscience too. So it was a really good mix and really good questions too. And what we generally find is the discussion is usually really respectful too. So sometimes the people that are at these meetings maybe don't want to see a lot of natural resource development in their area and they'll ask difficult questions. We're happy to answer those questions. But critical to be on the ground early and telling people about these things. You're doing a big favor to the mineral industry and exploration companies coming behind you because there's already some awareness. Well, what I hope happens, and I think we've seen a few examples of it. I've only been with Geoscience BC for three years now, so I, and these projects take a while, so I haven't been through many cycles of these kind of, uh, these kind of surveys. But what I hope is that we're just paving the path for some really good conversations. So in 2018, for example, we released the data from a project called Search Phase 3. So that was another geophysical survey. We worked really hard to make sure that we had we built good relationships through that project with the local indigenous groups, with the communities around the border. It's in a remote area, so the communities around the, the, the border of that survey and with the, the folks in the industry that were already interested in that area. <clears throat> and so what I think it did is, and what I hope it did, is it built a level of expectation. So... We release the data, people start staking claims. In that example, people were actually, uh, mineral exploration companies were doing field work in that area that very summer. But at the same time, it wasn't a surprise to the local First Nation when those guys showed up. And I'm not going to say it was entirely because of the work that Geosites BC had done, but when that exploration company signed an exploration agreement with the local First Nation at the end of that summer, I was really pleased to see that because the local First Nation had a good idea already of the mineral potential and how the work that we've done was focusing mineral exploration. So I hope it just made that conversation a little bit easier. 
Communities come in all shapes and sizes, and sharing our knowledge, connecting with colleagues in other parts of the world, is particularly challenging right now as we face the pandemic. Geoscience BC, who featured in our last story, took its most recent open house online and had over 120 participants, five times the number at the event I attended in person. But how are economic geologists coping? Two early career scientists recognized the need early in the lockdowns this past March. The sharing ore deposits talks needed to go online. An email and a tweet later, and Tom Belgrano and Alana Brett were in business, having founded the Ore Deposits Hub. I talked to them to see just what this online community might mean for us all. I'm a postdoc at the National Oceanography Centre, Southampton. I'm still doing my PhD in the University of Bern in Switzerland. So the audience, I think, initially was academic students. Or what are you seeing in terms of audience? I think that we, we started off with that idea and then it really quickly quickly dawned on us, I think, that we could reach a lot further. And uh, as people started to respond to Tom's tweet on, on Twitter, we could see that there are people from not just students and academia, but also um, from industry that were really interested in hearing about these talks. And I think as we've seen the mailing list grow from a few hundred in the first couple of weeks, which were like, wow, you know, that's a lot. And now it's over 3,000. Uh-huh. I just summed up all the the total number of viewers we've had, and that's been almost 3,000 people have tuned into talks live. I, yeah. and, and then about double that have watched our YouTube videos. But basically, we're getting around 150 to 250 people tuning in live, which we sort of equate to a, a big auditorium, you know, pretty good yep. turnout. Yeah, totally. And the split is is often, I think, quite closely down the middle between industry, uh, academia, and some survey workers in there as well. The biggest emergent strength of Autoposits Hub is that we've found we're connecting people from parts of the world, people that are usually underrepresented on the traditional conference circuit, connecting up the whole sort of ecosystem that allows us to find ore deposits, academics, survey workers, industry geologists. I mean, there's a big difference between where academic research is published and where a lot of these metals are produced, you know, where the geologists who find them actually live. So connecting them, busy people who don't have time or maybe money to go to uh, an annual conference to find out what the latest ore deposit research is, that's definitely a a big goal goal of ours. And I think working together with SGA and IGOD, we can definitely uh, keep pushing on that. Most of us... Uh, a member. Yeah. All, all of the hosts are members of at least one or two of these societies. They, for whatever reason, they do seem to reach a slightly different audience, whether it's geographic or in terms of affiliation. So for us, we're trying to connect across geography and across affiliations. And how are you handling the, the finances? Tom put together a really great proposal with um, input from the rest of our team. And we decided yeah. with a yeah. a combined structure from the three societies that they could all fund equally. The funding has to come from somewhere and it's really great that they're all three are on board because we, we couldn't run it without them to give back to the community, to grow diversity and to bring up the level around the world for geoscience. And is travel and climate change still a driving factor for you in thinking about how we communicate our science? Yeah, 
definitely. I mean, it's it's just a it's a big bonus, right? I don't think we want to replace physical conferences. There's a, there's a huge value in that face-to-face interaction, but if some aspects of it could be digital, then we're going to see yeah. lower carbon yeah. emissions. That's also uh, part of the reason that we're collaborating with the the big societies in our field. One thing that I observe in your discussion sessions is actually people being able to interact. So what's your feeling about that? Can you create this platform in a way that makes it a a place that there can be that kind of network connection, even finding mentors? So one of our new team members, he um, said to us, I watched one of these talks and I really wanted to talk to the senior researcher more. So I wrote to him and he said, sure, let's, Let's have a Zoom. I don't know, in a way, like having someone on a screen in your home is, I think you feel a little bit more of a connection with them than you maybe do at a conference. So I think that's kind of a unique thing as well that these kind of meetings can offer that you maybe feel a bit more personal. I think the other thing is that the the 45-minute discussion um, really gives a lot more chance as well. Like, we do have often quite very fast discussions at conferences, like a little bit on the on the gender the gender diversity side of it. Um, but I think initially when we started out, we had a lot of applications from, and it was predominantly from male speakers, and that's like fantastic. They're all excellent presenters. But it really dawned on us that because it's a digital platform it does make it more accessible and we've definitely seen that. And now that we've really made an effort to reach out to female speakers, we can see that we've got 50, 50 in July and we set that for ourselves that we should keep that goal. And frankly, it hasn't been that difficult to balance our platform. There's no excuse for, for conferences to have these lopsided uh, keynote speaker lineups. It, all it took was a, f- a few emails every now and again and we were balanced. Yeah. At least in our case, a lot of the strengths of Autobuzz's Hub will work, I think, just generally lowering barriers to participation in communicating science. We definitely provide this open platform and we are actively trying to solicit talks from people from all different backgrounds, places, genders. There's no shortage of great speakers. Thanks for joining us for this episode in the SEG Sequent Partner Discovery to Recovery podcast. I'm Ann Thompson, along with your hosts, Nicole Doucette and Hallie Keevil. Next week, Nicole will take a look at how technology can help communities and talk to some geoscientists working to solve problems. Thanks to Monica, Susan, Richard, Todd, Tom, and Alana for participating in this week's episode. You can access all of them on segweb.org slash podcasts. This episode was produced and written by Anne. Key technical and story support was provided by Veronique Jones. The rest of the team are Hallie Keevil, Nicole Doucette, and Sam Weatherly. Our theme music is Confluence by Eastwinds. Thanks for listening.